there are moments that change your life. I'm talking about the big moments, the moments that that leave you speechless, the moments that leave you without really any kind of bearings at that moment, or you have to kind of regain those bearings. You have to rethink the circumstances, situation. Sometimes those moments are tragedies, things that occur to us, things that happen to us that are just simply overwhelming. Sometimes they are a blessing, like when uh, I was told the first time I was going to be a daddy. It was just that moment my wife came in. She said, uh, guess what, son, uh, honey? I said, what? <laughs> she said, you're going to be a daddy. And I went silent. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know exactly what all that meant. I was a little per- perplexed. Um, it really wasn't in the plans at that moment. But I knew I had to come to terms with it. And that's what those life-changing moments mean for us, that we have to come to terms with it, despite our perplexity, despite our fears, our concerns, our issues. We have to keep going. We have to find a way to respond. We have to find a way to cope, to prosper, to move on. In our text today, we read a passage about three women who experienced just such a moment. A moment that would change their circumstances, a moment that would change their lives, a moment that would redirect everything they experienced, everything they knew. And not just them, but all of humanity. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 16. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the miracles of Jesus and what they tell us about Him, what they tell us about ourselves. And we'll return to that journey uh, next week. But we move further on into Mark today, to Mark chapter 16, to to look at the greatest miracle, the biggest miracle, the, the momentous experience of the resurrection. And Mark characterizes this event differently than any of the other gospel writers, as we'll see as we, we move through this text this morning. There are certain things that Mark points out, certain things that Mark says that are very distinctive, that are that are significant, and it's an invitation, I think, for us to see ourselves in this moment and to ask how we might respond today, how we might respond to the reality of the resurrection. Beginning in verse 1, we read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white 
robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment had overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. You see the journey begin here in the first couple of verses. The sorrow, the grief that these women had, had felt, what they had experienced. They had seen him die. They had seen the one in whom they had placed so much trust, so much hope, so much confidence taken from them. Just a week earlier, they had seen him ride in uh, on the donkey into Jerusalem and seen the crowds praise him and, and, and honor him and, and sing his, his glory, Hosanna. And in just a few short days, that had all changed and he had died on the cross. And because he had died just before the Sabbath, just before Passover, they hadn't had a chance to pay their respects. They hadn't had a chance to, to, to mourn him, really, to, to, to go through the customs that they were used to going through. And so now they're coming to anoint his body, and it seems that they're so racked by sorrow, so overwhelmed by what they've experienced and what they've seen and what they've gone through that they're almost there before they realize we don't even have any way of getting in. How, how are we even going to get to him? They put him in a tomb and they put a rock in front of the tomb. But all of that sorrow, all of that grief, all of that hurt, all of that disillusionment, all of that pain was about to change. And I, I want you to notice here that it all changed for them based upon the testimony of someone else. This one who's sitting there in the tomb telling them he was dead, he was crucified, but now he is alive. He's risen. And I think Mark reports it that way, records it that way here initially for us. And, and that's all he gives us at this point. Other Gospels tell us of, of other encounters that Mary would have with Jesus himself and so forth. But Mark just leaves us there. And I think part of what Mark is trying to, to do here is to tell us that that we too function off the testimony of someone else. We too function off the evidence that's been given to us from other sources. We have the testimony of the divine. For them, it was the angel telling them, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. He goes, into, he goes into that detail. He goes into that extra information to, to fill them in, to, to let them know that we're talking about the person. He is resurrected. 
For us, the testimony of the divine comes through Scripture. God's Word, God's breathed out Word testifies to us, tells us, reports to us, communicates to us the truths of what happened that Sunday morning. But it's not just that testimony. We also have the testimony of the evidence. For them, the, the stone that was large, Mark says, it had been rolled away. It's not a stone that any single person could move. It's not a stone that even a group of people could easily move. But it was moved to the side. For us, it's the empty tomb. If you ever have the chance to, to go to Israel, they'll, they'll, they'll take you as part of your tour as you get there into Jerusalem. They'll take you to two locations, most likely. One of those locations is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, and it's, it's what you would expect. It's a church. It's very ornate. It's very decorated. It's very uh, austere. It's very, it's very proper. There's incense burning inside. There's, there's uh, all sorts of decorations so forth hanging from the ceiling. And you go into the, the, what, what's called the, the little crypt there. And it, it too is very ornate and very beautiful. And then they'll probably take you on to um, the garden tomb, as it's called. And there you, you have this, this tomb that has some evidences that people worshipped there at one time, some Christian symbols on it and so forth. It has a very different feel. It's, uh, it's a garden. And you walk in it, it's peaceful, it's beautiful, it's, it's tranquil, it's serene, very simple. Two very different locations. One has history on its side. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. One has more of a, the feel on its side. That's the Garden Tomb. And each place will tell you why they're the correct place. But here's what ultimately matters. Is that either place is empty. There's no body there. There's no person laying in either of those tombs. Because our Savior is risen. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And there's tons of evidence to support that that in fact happened. Besides just the empty tomb, there's, a, there's the changed mindset, the changed perspective of the disciples. There's the, the fact that the church would be born at this moment, a, a movement that would grow significantly. There is the changed lives of individuals today who can testify to you what the risen Savior means to them and continues to do in their lives. But as these women hear this testimony, as we hear this testimony, there's a question that, that comes to the front. What are we going to do with it? When we read these stories, when we encounter this evidence, what are we going to do with it? And notice what Mark says here. They said nothing to anyone because they were, my translation says, afraid. The evidence that they had encountered was met with silence. Now, if you're like me, your tendency is to, to read that sentence and to say, wait, 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 there's more. We know they went eventually and told the disciples. We know that Mary interacted with Jesus. We, we know that the story got out. We know that they communicated all they experienced. And, and we want to 
We want to resolve the tension. We, we, we don't like the, the sense of that, that ending. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But we shouldn't be too quick to resolve that tension because that's kind of the point of what Mark's trying to do here. Because like every other life-changing moment, we have a choice of what to do with it. And the word that, that Mark ends there with, they were afraid, can also be translated, they were in awe. And we don't really know which one's intended. We don't really know which word, which translation is more appropriate here. Mark uses this phrase throughout his gospel, and whenever he uses it, context tells us whether they were afraid and debilitated or whether they were in awe and moved to something better and bigger and brighter. But here we don't have that. We're just left with that last sentence. And I think that's Mark's invitation to us, asking us, what are we going to do with this moment? How are we going to respond? Will we be filled with awe that encourages and transforms and empowers in the days ahead, that moves us to engage our culture, to say to our culture, there is an answer, there is a solution, there is a hope beyond the pain that you're currently feeling? Or will we instead be moved by fear, which debilitates and limits and, and, and steals our joy and steals our hope and keeps us from speaking out? the reality of what Christ might do. Too, for too many of us, too often, it's that latter response that we have. We don't walk with the Lord. We don't confess His presence in our lives. We don't participate in Worship or experiences that deepen our relationship, whether it's Bible study or prayer. We say things like, I don't need church. I don't need any of that. I'm good to go. Because we're afraid of what it might cost us if we actually entered into a full-scale relationship with the Creator. We're afraid of what our friends or our family or others might think of us. We're afraid of any number of things that pop into our head, some reasonable, some not reasonable, but we are afraid. Our response to the word here is basically fear. I don't want to move on that. I don't want to respond to that because of where it might lead. But we need instead to be moved by awe, to see the potential of the moment, to see the immensity of what God can accomplish in our lives. If He can bring someone back from the grave, what can He do in your life? What can He do with your circumstance? We need to visit this moment. And so... With the remainder of our time this morning, let's visit this moment. Let's see what this moment did and continues to do. 
the first thing we see about this moment is that it is a moment that deals with despair. Notice how Mark begins his narrative here. When the Sabbath was over. Mark's the only one who, who uses that phrase. It's implicit in all of them, but he's the only one who specifically spells it out. And I, again, I think he's trying to say something significant to us there. Because if you think about your perspectives of Easter, we think about Good Friday, we think about the cross, we think about all the things that Jesus went through, the crucifixion, the whippings, the taunting, the darkness, all of that. And then, of course, we think about Sunday and we think about Easter and the resurrection and the power that that manifests. But what about that Saturday, the Sabbath? What was going on then for those people? What were they experiencing? Because for them, that was the day of worship. That was the day when they would have gone to synagogue or perhaps the temple. They would have sing, sang the praises of their God. They would have acknowledged His, his power. They would have, be, with it being connected to Passover, they would have also acknowledged the fact that He had brought them out of Egypt, that He had planted them in the land. They, they would have acknowledged all these past acts of God, all the, the wonderful things that He had done. They would have seen that. They would have understood that. That would have been their normal Saturday. But here they are, and all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their visions of where this was all headed had collapsed. Where was God now? The one they had praised, the one they had learned from, the one they had loved, the one they had known for three years. In some cases, much longer than that. He was dead. And it wasn't just that they'd lost a loved one. That in and of itself was difficult. That in and of itself was hard as it is for all of us when we lose those we love. Jesus was more than just a loved one. He was everything. In their minds, He was every promise God had ever made to them. He was every expectation they'd ever planted in God, every, every hope, every dream. And it was all gone. It was all gone. And then you add into that the fear. They got Jesus. Are they coming after me too? He was our leader. And they know we were with Him. Am I going to have to go through the same thing He just went through? And so the Sabbath had been horrible as it sometimes is for us when we come to worship and we don't feel like being here, we don't want to be here, we don't, we don't feel God's presence, we don't experience what's going on, we've lost things or we're going through things that distract us, that hurt us, that disturb us, 
and we don't know what to do. And so Mark makes that note after the Sabbath. But, but here's the thing. Mark's writing this many years later. And because he's writing it after the fact, we know what? We know it's just a footnote. It's just a transitional phrase. Think about that. Have you ever even noticed that it says after the Sabbath? Probably not. You're just, let's get to the resurrection. Let's get to the news. Why? Because the power of the resurrection is so thorough that it wipes away that despair. It wipes away that hurt. It wipes away that disillusionment. It wipes away that hurt. It moves us to a, a new status. And so as we go through life and we go through these hardships and these difficulties, we, we go through these, these moments when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances and we feel that despair and we feel that loss, we need to hold on to the truth that because He lives, I can indeed face tomorrow. Because He lives, I can deal with this loss. Because He lives, I cannot just function in this life of hurt and pain and sorrow. I can prosper. Jesus came, He said, to give you life, and not just life, but abundant life. We can experience that. We can know that because of this moment. It's not just a moment that deals with despair, however. It's a moment that deals with failure. Notice how verse 7 begins. But go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. What? Why? Why that little addition there? He was one of the disciples. He would have been assumed to have been included, right? Most scholars think that, that Mark got his information from Peter. That most of what he shared in his gospel came by way of what Peter had shared with him. And so I think as, as, as this is being reflected on here and, and he's thinking about this and, and of course reporting the truth here, here's the thing. Peter at the time when this gospel was written was by all marks, the, the leader of the apostles. He was the one who had stood up at Pentecost and, and preached. He was the one who had, who had led and had organized in, in so many different ways. But where was he at the moment of the crucifixion? He was hiding. And even before that, during the trial, where was he? He was in the courtyard. He had followed along behind the, the soldiers who had arrested Jesus. Just earlier that evening, he had said, wherever you go, Lord, I'm going too. Whatever you go through, I'm going through it too, even if it means death. And then he stands there in the courtyard, and people recognize him. Hey, aren't you one of his? I'm pretty sure I, I saw you with him. And three times he said what? 
Not me. You have me mistaken. I have, I have one of those faces. Who knows? Maybe they're all wearing masks. They all look alike. But he what? Three times he denied Jesus. Three times he rejected any connection with the one that just moments before he'd said, I will die for you. And then the rooster crowed. And it hit him what he'd just done. And you got to... You got to think that that Sabbath for him was especially difficult. I denied him. I said I wouldn't, and yet I did. And I didn't just do it once. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. I did it three times. And so, in that moment of resurrection, in that moment of Relaying the truth. The angel says what? Be certain you find Peter. Be certain he knows that his failure has been dealt with. In 1972, there was a distraught man who slipped into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he had a hammer, and he proceeded to smash Michelangelo's piazza. A few years later, an angry man rushed through the Rieks Museum in Amsterdam, ran to the back, reaching Rembrandt's famous painting, Night Watch. He took out a knife and slashed it repeatedly. Here were two masterpieces destroyed in mere moments by anger, by hurt. So what did they do with those masterpieces? Did they take the painting and, well, how much of it left now? Let's burn it. Did they take the sculpture and say, well, we could use this marble for something else. We can repurpose it. We can find a, another way of maybe expressing this beauty. Maybe make a, a monument of the damage. Go that route. No, that's not what they did. Because those masterpieces were so significant. They poured money and time and expertise into them to restore them. And if you go to St. Peter's today, I've been there. I've, I've looked closely at the Piazza. You can't even tell it was damaged. You can't even tell somebody had smashed it to pieces. It has been restored to its fullness. Let me tell you this today. You are worth far more than any masterpiece that's ever been created. The God of this universe made you.
and he loves you, and he values you. And some of you are here today, and you're broken, and you're smashed, and you're slashed up by the hurt and the anger, maybe that you feel or that someone else has felt, and, and they've poured it out on you. And you look at your life, and you look at the damage, and you look at all that you're going through, and you think, is there anything even worth saving here? And let me tell you as clearly as I can, you are a masterpiece worth restoring. And Jesus, in this moment, gave you the opportunity to do just that. To find restoration. To find hope. To find renewal. To become a new creature. To become one who walks with his God with her God in a way that you were designed to, in a life that's better than you can imagine. Jesus' resurrection deals with our failure and then some. And then third, it's a moment that fulfills his promise. Notice the the second part of verse 7. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. If you go back to chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus there is, is talking. And he says to Peter, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So what is Mark relating there? What is Mark communicating there? Jesus promised you he'd come back. And he has. The resurrection is the fulfillment of a promise. A promise that was made to Adam and Eve when he said, I will crush the serpent's head. A promise that was made to Abraham when he said, through you, through your seed, all the families of the earth will find blessing. A promise that was made through Isaiah when he said, by his stripes you will be healed. A promise that was made to Malachi when he said, unless the Messiah comes, we will suffer under the ban, but he will be coming. He will solve our deepest needs. Jesus defeated death. He robbed death of its power. As we read earlier in 
in Romans chapter 6. Death no longer has mastery over him. And if he be risen from the grave, then what? We can expect, we can hope, we can hold on to the fact that we will rise as well. That is our hope. That is our destiny. And we can know that it's going to happen because he's a man who keeps his promises. But here's the thing. It's not just about that day out there when the resurrection happens and we enjoy the new heaven and the new earth throughout eternity. It's not just about then. It's about right now, too. Because Jesus took on the most powerful foe we have, the foe of death, the one who reaches out and grabs all of us, and he beat him. He defeated it. And if he can beat that, there's nothing you face that he can't overcome as well. There's nothing you struggle with. There's nothing that, that, that you're bound by. There's nothing that you're limited by. There's nothing that you're overwhelmed by that Jesus can't conquer if you will just give it to him and let him lead you through that. Life is, is filled with many decisions. Every day we make decisions. Some are super mundane. What am I going to wear today? Some of you have your, your outfits picked out. Some of you are like, perhaps like Steve Jobs, former head of Apple, who wore the exact same outfit every single day just so he wouldn't have to make that decision in the morning when he got up. Why? Because it's not that big a deal. But there are other decisions that are huge, that can alter the very course of your life. And today you're faced with one of those moments with one of those decisions. And it's simply this. How will you deal with the risen Savior? How will you respond to the testimony that He's no longer here? He's risen from the grave. The one who was dead has been brought back to life. You can reject it. Say, I don't believe it. It's insignificant. It's unimportant. People are fools for putting any confidence in it. But if you do that, you're walking away from the one hope you have. For life and joy everlasting. You can accept it, be moved by awe by it, and leave here with a renewed conviction, a renewed commitment, a renewed focus in sharing your faith wherever you go.
But one thing you can't do with it is nothing. You have to make a choice. You have to make a response. To say I'm not going to respond is to respond. And it's to say no. Jesus is calling us to something more. The Father is calling us to something greater. He's here to restore and to help. He has given us a moment that deals with our despair. He's given us a moment that deals with our failure. He's given us a moment that promises something greater now and into eternity. How will we respond to that moment? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, God, we, we pray that you would help us to respond with the awe that the resurrection deserves. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never surrendered their life to you, never given their, their whole being to you, Lord, that you would draw them, that you would convict them, that you would help them to see that such a status, such a decision is one that ultimately leads to hopelessness. To emptiness and to despair. God, I pray that you would help those of us who have decided to surrender, who have given our lives to you, to to live in the joy of that decision, to walk in the peace that you alone can grant, that even as we face hardships, even as we face pain and sorrow and grief, that we do so mindful of the fact that you've conquered our biggest enemy and that you can see us through that as well. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your son and what he offers us in eternal life. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.